0: Get ready, it's time for Motherhood Talk Radio, live on Toganet.com. Motherhood Talk Radio, starring Sandra Beck, is the most powerful voice in women's issues today. As the owner of Motherhood Incorporated, Sandra brings you inspiring, influential, and interesting resources to help you navigate everything from childcare to corporate formation. Motherhood Talk Radio features the powerful voices of Christy Hawley, Robin Boyd, Linda Franklin, Tracy Coston, Danny Kiernan, Susan Hayde, and Lisa Dietress. Together, these women bring you everything from the latest crafting tips to how to be sexy in your 40s, from great parenting tips to moms living with cancer, and most importantly, how to bounce back with style. Motherhood Talk Radio helps you make a difference in your world and the world around us. Being all you can be starts right here, right now. Let's do it. Here's your host, Sandra Beck.
1: Hey girls, this is Sandra Beck and this is Motherhood Talk Radio and we've got a such a great guest today. We are going to be visiting in depth. With Susan Sokol Blosser. And she has done something really, really interesting. At the height of her career, after building and leading one of the most innovative wineries in America, she did the unthinkable. She turned away from the work she loved and she handed control of the winery over to her children. Now, for those of you listening who are type A, crazy, crazy, you know, workaholic personalities like myself, the idea of turning your business over to your kids seems like Only when I'm in a wheelchair, (laughs) only when there's no other option, you know, and they're taping me up to sit at my desk to keep what I'm doing. Um, But after reading Susan's guide, uh, her book, Letting Go, uh, which talks about the process of transferring the leadership of a family business to the next generation, I found it really fascinating. Uh, I came from a family of entrepreneurs. My dad uh, and his partner had a small business that bloomed into a big business and uh, controlled was transferred over eventually to his partner's uh, daughter and son and then my oldest brother and it was very interesting for me to be a young woman watching this transition because there was no way my dad was letting me in the business <laughs> so I'm sure you can figure out that one uh, for yourself but um, the fact of the matter is is when we are very very successful and we decide to turn the leadership. Um, of a family business over to the next generation, there's not a lot of guideposts to follow. There's not a lot of people willing to talk about this. And that what is what makes Susan uh, Sokol Blosser's book, Letting Go, so important and so powerful and such an important read for anyone listening today that uh, owns a family business and that is considering at some point turning over the reins uh, to their children. Um, because there are lessons in this book for entrepreneurs, for visionaries, and for parents parents. And it's very uh, honest. It's a very honest book. And that's uh, one of the things that I enjoyed the most about it. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Susan Sokol Blosser, her book Letting Go, and have her tell you a little bit about herself. Susan, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you, Sandra. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so interested in your reaction, because family business is a real special niche, I we didn't. My former husband and I didn't start out to create a family business. We were just doing our thing. We were in our mid twenties. Um, we decided we wanted to have a vineyard, and actually, the story is kind of interesting because we were two liberal arts graduates. We we were well educated. We went, both graduated from Stanford University, but in liberal arts. We had no business or financial training and no agricultural training, although we decided to start an agricultural business by starting a vineyard. We decided we wanted to grow Pinot Noir, which is the great grape from the Burgundy region of France, and which had never done well in the United States. And we decided to locate in Oregon, which had no wine industry. So, it's a good thing at that point that we didn't go to any business counselors because with a business plan like that, they would have laughed us out of the room. But look what happened in one, the space of one generation. Oregon wine, and especially Oregon Pinot Noir, is found worldwide in the very best restaurants. It's an industry that contributes over $3 billion to the Oregon economy. Grapes have become the number one fruit uh, produced in Oregon, and there are over 600 wineries. So miracles happen. That's the first thing I want to say. If you have a vision you know, don't give up on it, although it takes a lot of hard work. And the old saw about it takes 20 years to be an overnight success is really true, except in our case it was 30. So in the, we were in our 20s at that point, and I it really was my husband's idea, and I went along as a dutiful wife. I would never have started a vineyard on my own, and it took me years to really buy into the vision. When he was able to come full-time into the business, which was 1980, I didn't want to work. I was working at the winery then doing the tasting room, and I was doing other, other things. I worked as a newspaper reporter. I taught... American history at a local college that was my field. It's a good liberal arts major. And I decided, what could I do? Well, I could manage the vineyard. Well, I'd never grown anything, but I learned. And I was so proud of myself. You know, it was like, look, Ma, I'm driving the tractor. Um, <laughs> i have grown up in a, you know, suburban area in the Midwest. I'm from Wisconsin. So these were all new skills, and I really loved it. And it really connected me with the land in a way that I never could have imagined. If I'd lived all my life in a city, I never would have developed that sense of place, the connection with the earth that I developed by managing the vineyard and working in it, handwork, tractor work, all day. So then in 1991 or at the end of 1990, um, my husband was really burned out. Building the Oregon wine industry was tough. And he also, you know, we were in tough times. Our standard of living had declined. And one of us needed to get a real job outside of the winery. And it wasn't me Although I could have gone back to teaching, I did have a teaching credential um, from what I considered my past life, my pre-vineyard life. But the reality was that he could command more money in the marketplace than I could. And he was ready to go back to city planning, which is what his, his field had been. So who would take over the winery? Well, I got the job. I got it. It was something I never would have been hired for. Um, I did not have the financial background. I don't have an MBA. It was totally, you know, on the job training. But I was willing to work for half the salary that he got and I wanted the chance. I'd been watching. And so I took over on January 2nd, 1991. And I ran the winery, which at that point was deeply in debt for 17 years and brought it out of debt and made it successful. Um, The name Sokol Blosser, which is the name of the winery, Sokol Blosser Winery in Dundee, Oregon, is a combination of our family names. My maiden name was Sokol. I married Bill Blosser, and we put our names together. And um, people used to tease him and say, okay, Blosser, how come her name's first? And I used to laugh and say, "Oh, it's because I'm the most important." But there really was a very critical marketing reason for my name being first, because we called ourselves SB Vineyard, and we didn't want to be known as BS Vineyard. Oh, (laughs) well, I love SB
1: Vineyard because it's my initials, Sandra Beck. So I think you made a smashing
2: choice. Perfect. That's perfect. So what happened? is that in um, 1991, when I took over, the wine industry was just starting to blossom. And we were starting to market nationally, and it it was a good time. So that, you know, I'd like to take all the credit for being successful, but I was also in the right time you know, in the right place at the right time. So over the course of those years, I had a vision. I wanted to make our winery a values-based business. I wanted to be sustainable, which was just coming into vogue. I mean, it was a, a word that was not in our vocabulary when we started out. Um, but my goal was to be, have a business that was sustainable across the operation so that we looked at everything we did and how we could make less impact on the earth. Um, we looked at the weight of the bottles that we put our wine in. We looked at the materials that we packaged. We, um, I made went over a long transition period to take the vineyards organic. We're now organically certified at Sokol Blosser, all 125 acres. And that vision, you know, as well as to make fabulous wine that would be sought after um, by people who loved great wine and especially great Pinot Noir. I hired a winemaker um to take us to that next level, that winemaker subsequently became my husband, um, which is a story that's also in the book, little romance. Um, and probably, and we built a barrel cellar, which was a big deal for us—a way to keep our barrels of Pinot Noir in a quiet, dark, temperature-controlled space. And we were the first winery to be, to gain the U.S. Green Building Council's prestigious LEED certification, uh, which is a sustainable certification. So all of these things worked into my vision. And at the end of, uh, 2004, I was tired. But it was more than being tired. I was riding, for example, with a salesman uh, from our distributorship in Texas. Nice young man, and we were having a pleasant conversation. But it occurred to me that when he went home that night and talked to his wife, he was, and she said, oh, what did you do today? He would probably say, well, you know, I rode with this old lady trying to sell her wine. And I thought, you know... I think somebody younger might have a better time connecting with this guy. He had a portfolio of many, many wines. I had only a few hours riding with him to make him a fan of mine. And we got along, but I thought somebody more hip would have connected with him better. So that was one little thing that happened that I put sort of in the back of my mind. And then I thought my two children by 2004, actually I have three children, but two of them at that point had started working at the winery, Alex and Allison, and um, in sales and marketing and finance. They both had MBAs. And had gone on to do other things, but had circled back to the winery, which actually was a surprise because we never encouraged them to come into the business. We thought that it was such a tough life. They should probably, they would probably be happier doing something else, but they came back. So that was wonderful. So they came into the business.
1: and, And I'm just going to interrupt here, Susan, for a second. That's, you know, it's an interesting thing because, you know, I went to business school and there were really no courses about how to run a family business, which is very different than, you know, going into somebody's corporation. And you've got two grown children, like you said, circle back, but you still have all those, as you put it in your book, compact. I'm sorry, complex layers of family bonds. Because I have a brother, I have two brothers, and I have a sister. So when I look at, like, if my brother and I were working in the same company with mom, I can just only imagine some of the unique challenges that you would have versus, you know, all of us
2: working for some faceless, nameless corporation. Absolutely. And when Alex started, he started in 1998, and he had been working with a... Uh, wine distributor, and I needed him to help me with sales, so he comes into the office, and um, the first question was, Mom, what do I call you? Do I call you Susan? Do I call you Mom? So we said, we talked about this, and we decided, well, you know we should make it formal so he started out calling me Susan, but ended up calling me Mom. And it actually was, I thought, quite charming that we would go do sales calls, and or we'd be in a in an office in a discussion, and he'd turn to me and say, "Mom," just sort of set the tone for um, the whole meeting. When Allison came in, um, she was well. The dynamics. Let me just say one other thing. I have three children. The oldest, Nick, started his own business. So he was out of the picture as far as working for the winery. But I have to say we've kept his attention by making him chairman of the board now. So he is very involved. His younger brother, Alex, and younger sister, Allison, are the ones who came to work came back to work for the winery. Allison worked for Nordstrom. She worked for um, a um, PR company and had some really wonderful training that I thought would be wonderful in marketing as well. And we wondered whether we could work together. I could never have worked for my mother. So that was a real question that we discussed, and we went to a counselor to talk it over. And then there was the dynamic between Alex and Allison because she was six years younger. The younger sister, you know, they really knew how to set off each other's buttons. Um, And that was a dynamic that they had to overcome. So when we decided... um, Well, let me just, I want to get to how we decided because we ended up making them co-presidents. But I want to go back first to say a little bit more about how I made the decision. They both had MBAs. I didn't have an MBA. And I wondered if maybe I had outgrown my competency that I'd taken the winery from twenty thousand cases to over sixty thousand cases but you know the world was getting more complex we had been under the radar when we started uh... when bill and i started but now at that time the wine industry was growing and maybe it needed someone with more sophisticated skills more expertise than i had particularly if we wanted to expand so it became a question really of what is in the best interest for the business. And then the last thing was I had pretty much fulfilled my vision for what I wanted for the winery, becoming sustainable, taking the quality of wines to the next level, um, you know, taking the vineyard organic, becoming in the put positioning Sokol Blosser in the upper level of Oregon wines. So, th- But you can't go on without a vision. And it it struck me that the winery needed a new vision. Maybe it should come from the next generation. They were the ones who were going to be leading it. They should own the vision. So all of these things together, the bit of fatigue, the lack of skills, the need for a new vision made me realize that I ought to do something. And the decision, the final nail came when I went out to lunch with my son Nick, the oldest son, and I happened to mention to him that I was tired, and he looked at me and he said, Mom, I know, I've been wondering when you would say something. And a shiver went through me that, Wow, I've been so transparent. I had no idea. I thought I was keeping this all to myself, and he had seen it. So that's when I instituted. This was 2004. I called a, a friend who, her name was Pat Frischkoff. She had founded the Family Business Program at Oregon State University, which still exists and is a great resource, and there are several family business programs at colleges around the country. And she came and talked to us about the challenges of getting the staff to switch their allegiance from me, who had hired them all, to Alex and Allison, who were quite a bit younger than most of the staff, for example. Um, And she helped us come up with a plan for how we would integrate um, Al alex and allison into that but then there was another la- layer and that was alex and allison needed a business coach they needed someone who would help them learn to work with each other and that was something that i would recommend this isn't something you have to do by yourself Um, There are people who specialize in this, and having a neutral person is really important. Um, I found it very, it was like going to a mediator. You know, we would have issues that were hard for us to face among ourselves, but going to a person who was neutral, sitting at the table with them, was really helpful. It allowed us to say what we felt Get every all the issues out on the table, and um, then we could negotiate. So,
1: well, and would you say that it helped preserve? Because all I can think about is like me working with my older sister, who's a little bit older than me and very maternal, and then I'm kind of you know snarky and obnoxious, walk to my own drum. I can see where a ringleader would come in and just bring everything just to the issue, so there's no sibling things, there's no big sister, little sister, or brother, or mom, you know, that you're talking about a neutral party that can come in and help you move forward with the decisions that need to be made without getting any of the family issues in the way. Is that, am
2: I understanding correctly? That's absolutely right, Sandra. And one of the ways that she put this was, what hat are you wearing when you say this? You know, are you wearing your business hat? Are you wearing your little sister hat? Are you wearing your big brother hat? Are you wearing your, you know, attitude toward mom hat? That we wear a lot of different hats in our daily lives, and you need to know where you're coming from in your feelings and your responses to things. So there were a lot of family dynamic issues that came up, And it was interesting how different we saw them. For example, um, I had a terrible time letting go of control, and I didn't realize what a control freak I was, that I wanted to make the decisions. So here's an example. When we decided um, I have to go back one little step and say that Um, the decision over who was going to be the president loomed over us because Alex and Allison each wanted it. They each had their own skills. And the interesting thing was that their skills were extremely different. It was like if we could just combine them how neat would that be so alex is charismatic he's a natural salesperson he's interested in people he's outgoing and he was the one who when grandma would come over and say well how was your day to each of the kids he was the one who would say well grandma what did you do today and how, how was your day So you know just a real people person However, he tended to overbook himself, to take on too much, things might fall through the cracks. He was not an administrator. Allison, on the other hand, much shyer, um, that shyness sort of overlay of fierce determination, but um, more of an introvert, but... Great administrative skills and great organizing skills you know from the time she was a toddler and she organized all her toys into grocery bags um she'd been organizing things um, but not as warm partly because she was an introvert, but not quite as warm as Alex. So in terms of, you know, we were afraid she might come across as a little harsh, and in terms of being an administrator, you don't want someone who's just appears relatively cold. In fact, at one point, I had all our our senior management team take personality tests, and when I got the results of Alice and Alex, I burst out laughing because... They were at total ends of the extreme, you know, just total opposites. So we struggled with this, and at one point, after a discussion with a business coach, and we had all these issues on the table, she said, this was in 2005, she said, just let it ride. You don't have to make this decision now. Concentrate on the business. So... That's what we did, and we waited to see, when I say "we," that would be Bill Blosser and my oldest son Nick, who and I, who were the other three members of the winery board. The winery board has just been the five of us in the family. So neither of them outshone the other. They both learned. They both rose to the top. And that was a terrible dilemma. I mean, imagine choosing between two wonderful employees, but if they're your kids, choosing one over another. I mean, I, in terms of what I needed to recommend to the board, this was an awful dilemma. And I really thought that choosing one over the other would have serious consequences because Even though they would say it's okay, there would be expectations and resentment. So at the board meeting that we were going to decide this, Alex came to the board with a proposal. He said, Allison should be president. I will be vice president. And we were just appalled. And we said, Alex, don't you know, count yourself down like that. Why what why are you doing this? And he said, because both of us want to be president, but only one of us would be okay with as a vice president, and that's me. Which was really quite an interesting statement. But our business coach said to us, you know, consider co presidents she says, it's unusual But it's been done, and it works, and that ended up being what we did. So Alex and Allison in 2006 knew that they were each going to be president, co-president, when I turned over the gavel in 2008. So they had half a year of 2006 and all of 2007, um, which became the practice year. So what we did then was get them their own personal business coach who was charged with making them into a team. And that's happened. It's really a beautiful thing. They are each aware of each other's limitations. They're each aware of each other's strengths. And their relationship has deepened. And it's just, it's been beautiful to watch because um, if we had left them alone, they would—they might still have a good relationship, but it wouldn't have been this deep and this strong. And that's why I really recommend anyone who is going into this um, difficult time to have a business coach who can help you sort out the issues and point you in the right direction. The I have some interesting facts about family businesses. You know, most of the the majority of businesses in the United States are family-owned. They're responsible for 78% of job creation. These are from studies done by family business surveys and the Pew Institute and so forth. Seventy percent of family businesses want to stay in the family. Only 30 percent will be successful. And the real scary number, to me, having been through this, is that only 16 percent of family businesses have discussed and documented a succession plan. Wow. And then the last one. Only twenty four percent of family businesses are led by a female. So Sandra, you wanna weigh in at this point? Wow, you, you know well I was going? just thinking
1: about, you know, I, I you know, I, I just can only imagine, you know, I have two boys, and I have a family business, my business. And, you know, my older son expressed a lot of interest in wanting to be involved in it. And my younger son, and they they both are, you know, technically minded and things. And I all I could think about is how on earth would I make that choice? Because it's really difficult to separate yourself out from as a parent, you know what I mean, to just cut off that parent side of you. And then you think of the long term effects of choosing one child over the other, And the resentments and the, you know, just all the feelings that are out there. And then when you look at, um, you know, so many businesses don't have a succession plan. Of course they don't, because you know, like you said, most people that go into form their own business, they have an idea. They're not, you know, usually MBA graduates with a, you know, solid business background hiring a business coach and all these things because, you know, startup is expensive and you're figuring out things as you go. And there's so many other things that an entrepreneur needs to deal with. Like I think of you on your tractor, you know, you, you have to learn everything there is about grape growing and wine pressing and soil and, you know, marketing. And I mean, there's just a million things to learn even in 30 years. So it's not surprising that uh, there's no succession plans in place. And it's probably an emotional thing too, because what made you successful, Susan, is that controlling aspect to your personality. It's, you know, you can't have somebody not controlling run a great business. It just doesn't work. You have to, Just by the nature, somebody has to be in charge. Somebody has to be in quality control. Somebody has to be um, making sure that the company vision is executed and that there is a vision. So, you, you know, so you take somebody what the very essence of what made you good at what you do is the very thing that makes it hard to create and execute a succession plan and then add in the complex family dynamics. You know, I'm from the East, and I just say, we have a mess in Maple Leaf Gardens. Like, that's just it. Everybody climbed over, ran on the ice, and, you know, it could be something that injures your family exponentially for for generations to come if it's not handled properly.
2: Well, there certainly are horror stories about family family businesses that really are ruined because they didn't, you know, the succession plan wasn't in place. So I think many parents want to bring their kids into the business, but they don't want to give up control. They just want to, you know, have their kids work along with them. And I call this the Prince Charles syndrome where, you know, the kids are left waiting in the wings for the parents to die so they can take over, but they don't really have any training to take over. And I felt like I really wanted my kids to feel in their gut the weight of the business, the responsibility for the business. And then I felt in order for them to feel that weight of responsibility, they had to have it and for them to have it meant that I needed to step back. So that's what kept me going. But it was so difficult and I kept asking myself, why is this so difficult? This is something I wanted to do. I instituted it. And I finally Allison suggested because I well let me give you an example of the kinds of thing I things I did. Alex decided they they took more of a team approach, and he suggested that we have a executive committee that would be him and Allison and the winemaker and the finance person um, and and me, and there would be five of us, and we would discuss the issues, the company wide issues, and we had probably about twenty employees at that time, um, so we'd meet. And an issue would come up, and you know, my goal was for them to talk over the issue and to come up with a suggestion, and I would be the wise advisor, and I would maybe offer a tip or two. But I got so frustrated in those meetings because I knew what to do when an issue came up, and they just fumfered around, and finally, I would just trumpet all. Or as Allison said later, hijack the meeting and (laughs) say, well, this is what you need to do. And that would stop the meeting or, you know, decide the issue because ultimately people still looked to me because I was in name the president, although as they're, they were supposedly supposed to be running the show. And it took a while for me to realize that they needed to make, well, I mean, I knew they needed to make the decision, but it took a long time for me to realize what was going on inside of me and that it was, number one, habit. I was used to doing this. I was used to making decisions. I didn't go to a committee. I just made the decision. Um, secondly, I was frustrated with, what I guess I perceived as incompetence, but it wasn't incompetence, really. It was their learning how to deal with decision making. And it was also, I hate to admit this, but I was important as president. Well, it's ego. Of course it is. There's ego, but there's, I'm going to say there's two more anymore. things.
1: Are, there's ego, and that's a completely typical human reaction. You know, everyone would be the same as you. No judgment. I, you know, I could see myself in the same shoes. But the other thing that wasn't put on the table there is experience. Like when my dad and um, his business partner, you know, retired, quote, unquote, from the business, they still came in, you know, like three days a week. Because no matter what, handing the reins over to the next generation, you couldn't discount the 40 years of leadership, company leadership, and the ins and outs, and the depth of his knowledge and and his partner's knowledge that there's no way my brother or, you know, their son and daughter could have because they haven't run it for 40 years. Like, that's just, you know, this stuff had to be like second nature to you at that point.
2: Well, it was, but let me be devil's advocate and take the other side. Because absolutely, I knew what to do, but they wanted to make the decisions themselves. They wanted the experience of making the decision and taking the consequences. So, and I think that's important. I, um, at w- you know, I thought that Alex, who was at running the vineyard, uh, <clears throat> when I turned that over to him, would come to me and ask me about, you know, different things about the vineyard. He didn't. And I would see something, and I would bring it to his attention, and when I brought it to his attention, I could see a wall go up. So we went to the their business coach, who I had worked with a little bit, and Alex admitted that, Um, You know, he wasn't, I had been on a pedestal and I fell off because I made some business decisions he didn't agree with. So I sort of went in his mind from knowing everything to knowing nothing. And we discussed this. And at the end, the business coach said to me, and I still remember this because it was just so striking. She said, do you love your son enough to let him go? And that just went through me. She said, he is trying to individuate. He needs for you to step back and let him be himself, be his, make these decisions, and bear the consequences. And I fell over because I thought, how am I going to do this? You know, it was like... And I make this point in the book that all the buzz as you're growing up is about accumulation. You want to accumulate friends and education and expertise and material well-being and, you know, just on and on and on. Nobody talks about letting go. And in business circles, letting go is considered, you know, cutting back is considered weak. So when this came up, when she said this to me, and I thought, wow, this is going to take a an act of strength, I'm not sure I have. But I knew exactly what she meant. In my gut, I knew exactly what she meant. And the only way I was able to do that was to keep my distance from him. And we had a period of maybe two or three years where we I don't want to say we didn't talk, but we didn't have the camaraderie we had previously had you know at um early on when he just came into the business, we actually shared an office, so I saw him at family events, I was with his he has twin boys, I was with them as their grandma but Alex and I had this period of estrangement during which he was becoming his own person. And,
1: and becoming his own director of the company because, yes, at some point, I agree with you. You know, because it, it, I can only imagine the conflict in you because you have this knowledge, you have this skill set, but how else does he learn? It's like teaching a kid to drive a car at some point, they have to get behind the wheel, and you that's can't scream right. at them, you, you know, every minute on the freeway the as much <laughs> as you'd
2: like to. Um, well, I was trying but, to protect him. I mean, that's sure. what I realized. I was trying to protect him from. Getting hurt from doing something wrong, and that was the wrong thing to do. I but weren't you also, wasn't
1: there an aspect of you that was also protecting your company and your lifetime investment? You know, that's what I'm saying. It's more complicated than just a mother, it's more complicated than just a company owner. There's got to be that interweaving of all those things. I, you know, it had to be very difficult for you to separate
2: what was what. Well, yes, and you know, fortunately, the family board, uh, we had the the two new co-presidents on a tight leash. So, they weren't allowed to spend much money without the board's oversight. Um, so I you know, I was able to do that. The company was we were we figured out how to protect the company. This was more of a mother-son issue, but it got intermixed with a presidential business issue, which shows you the different layers um, that happen. And it was 2007, and one of the reasons that I entitled my book Letting Go was because I felt that I let go of a lot of different things, um, one of which was the business, but another one was my son. And... I hadn't realized that I hadn't let go of him until the business coach told me that.
1: Now, let me ask you, you know, because we have about 10 minutes left in the show. Was it different for, you know, and this is, again, mother, son, and this is your personal experience. You know, so you're speaking for yourself, not for every woman out there, every mother out there. But I only have sons, so I don't know what it's like to have a daughter. Was it a different letting go process with your daughter versus your son?
2: Well, yes, it was, but I think I hadn't um, held on to her the way I had emotionally without realizing it held on to Alex. And I think he was the only one of the three children that I had held on to like that. He was the middle child and um, very loving, and I just had held on emotionally to him as I say, without realizing it until it was pointed out. Allison would not let me hold on. I mean, she was very independent from the start, and there was never any question of holding on to her. But what that allowed us to do was to have, in some ways, a more adult-to-adult relationship because I feel like I'm closest to her now um of the three children but it's it's uh, well as Alex said to me once and I love this he said we will always be mother son but how we behave towards each other will change as we go along and I think You know, Allison and I will always be mother-daughter, but we're in a much more adult, equal relationship now. I go to her for advice on things.
1: Well, and that's interesting because I have, you know, two boys and one of them is very, very close to me. And the other one is I'm always chasing him for a hug. You know, he can't even sit on my lap long enough. You know, I can already see the different personalities in there. And it's its comforting and interesting to hear your experience because gender aside, you know, all of our children are different. And when we work with them in an organization and that, you know, I, I applaud you for being so open and candid about your children's pluses and minuses as leadership um, positions in your company and you know it's so great that you can do this because you show people like me who has a company eventually I want to turn over to my kids you know a multimedia company that there's a way to do this without blowing your kids apart, blowing their self esteem, blowing your relationships apart. You've actually done it and given us a guidebook and a roadmap and been very, very open and candid because I I know a lot of parents wouldn't be that open and candid about their children. I've got a lot of friends whose children are all perfect. They're all wonderful. And, you know, that really doesn't help us because at our core heart, we know our children have their, like any human being, pluses and minuses. And to recognize those things, I would think, could be the most loving thing you could do.
2: Well, thank you. I, I feel that way. I like that sentence. The most loving thing I can do is to let them be who they are and recognize that they're human, they have strengths, they have flaws, I love them regardless, and let's support the strengths. One of the things that I think my book is about is aging. And I think one of the – because that's really what I faced when I decided to turn over the business – it was a point at which I had just reached my 60th birthday, and that felt like I was walking through a door, the door to elderhood. And what I've, I'm now 70. Um, what I've realized is that one of the challenges of aging is managing loss, loss of stature, loss of people, parents, friends, the physical loss, the wrinkles, the stiffness, the aches, the energy level. You know, I simply can't do as much. I tire more quickly, even though I work out and am very active. And it's about recalibrating, about continuing to grow, even though I'm not climbing the career ladder now. I'm still growing. And that's what I want people to know, is that I thought, Running Sokol Blosser Winery would be my life. I would do it forever. But I found a really good life after letting go of the winery. There's light at the end of the tunnel, and it's worth doing.
1: And I love that. I love that. The only thing I I would say, and I guess, you know, because I'm, you know, approaching 50, you know, with my own company and I, you know, I look like, you know, go, well, how much, how much longer do I really want to run this and have the pressure and the stress and, you know, um, well, it's, it's really one of those things prime. that when you're younger, you're so busy with your children and your work. You don't really recognize the passage and the changes. Like I don't look at them as losses. I just look at them as changes. Like my body's changing. My my energy level is changing. My kids are changing. My relationships are changing. And I'm not really good at change, Susan. I'll be honest. to you, know? <laughs> That's not a strong point. Um, but some of these losses to me, mean incredible gains. Like I didn't hear anything in today's show about losses. I heard about all these gains, like what you gained by letting go, you gained a different and more complex and deep relationship with your children. You, uh, created a different relationship for your personal life. That sounds really satisfying. Um, I don't see them as losses. I see them as changes because if they were losses, you'd be on my show being really sad and your book would be really sad because loss is lost and we grieve a loss. But when I look at your book, I felt really good after reading it. I felt hopeful and like, wow, I can do this. I can turn the reins over. I can hire somebody, you know, to be that independent third counsel. I can be aware of, you know, my own, trying to figure out where are the mom dynamics versus where are my, you know, kid employee dynamics or employees in their own right. I guess I didn't see the lost part. I saw the hope. I saw the possibility for something different and equally or even more so rewarding.
2: So that's just my 10 set opinion. Oh, I love it. Thank you for giving it the right spin. You're absolutely (laughs) right.
1: Yeah, so we've got just a few minutes before the end of the show. Can you sum up if there was one thing that the listeners today could take away from your book? And we want to talk about, real quick, first where people can buy your book, how to get a hold of it. What would be your most compelling reason? For an entrepreneurial family member listening today, because I think the kid could buy it, the parent could buy it, the best friend could buy it, the sister could buy it, the grandmother could buy it, everybody could hand this over to a family business and say, you know what, there's some great things in here that you won't find anywhere else. What would be the compelling reason, you know, your best piece of advice, your best reason for, you know, any entrepreneurial member of a family to pick
2: up your book and read it? Well, I think the most compelling piece of advice I would have is think of the welfare of the business, not what you want, but what is going to keep the business healthy. And the corollary to that is that letting go opens opportunities that you never would have thought of. And it did for me, and I have, it was difficult. If I'd known how difficult it was, would I have done it? Yes, absolutely. It has been well worth it, and part of it was taking the time to plan and deepen those relationships and make it the success that it's been.
1: And Susan, where can we buy your book
2: well, I have an author website, which is my name, susansokolblosser dot com, and Sokolblosser is S O K O L B L O S S E R, um, and the book is available on that. It's also available at Powell's Bookstore, the largest bookstore in the world. Uh, they have an internet site called powells dot com. Um, it is not on Amazon, although the ebook would be. and the ebook is available in numerous places, Barnes and Noble, iBooks, um, many, many places internationally. But the paperback is only available at Powell's and on my website
1: outstanding outstanding well thank you very much Susan Sokol Blosser the author of the book Letting Go she's got some other books you might want to check out her book today that we talked about was how one entrepreneur energized her business empowered the next generation and embraced a bold new vision by letting go we will check in with you guys next week thank you so much Susan Sokol Blosser for being my guest today I look forward to everyone who owns a small business getting a copy of your book and finding in their hearts in their minds the best transition for their business this is sandra beck from motherhood talk radio and we'll catch you guys again next week
0: thanks for being with us today on motherhood talk radio starring sandra beck Motherhood Talk Radio brings you interesting, influential, and inspiring guests to help you be all you can be. Everything from great parenting tips to moms living with cancer, starting a family, or starting a business. Making the most of how you bounce back with style. Join us next week for another great guest you won't want to miss here on Motherhood Talk Radio, live every Tuesday afternoon on Toganet.com.